Oh, that was bad. I'm going to start again. <laughs> I'm just going to do what it says. <laughs> Take two. Okay. Sometimes it takes two. Takes two to tango, takes two to get our intro right. Welcome to History of the Sports Bra. Hello, hello. Welcome to History of the Sports Bra. I'm one of your hosts, Sophie Segretti. And I'm Julia Hostetter. Today, we're celebrating the ballers, the hoopers, the bigs, the centers, the forwards, the Sioux birds of basketball. Woo! But as is our, I guess our custom now, we're first, before we get into the meat of the episode, we're going to do a little update on the current world of women's sports. So my women's sports news update is that there is a new late night show featuring Carrie Champion and Jamel Hill have a new show on Vice TV called Stick to Sports. It's a late night sports show. I think it premiered this past Wednesday. And the whole point is that at some of their previous employers, they were told to stick to sports. Anytime the sports that they were talking about had any type of intersection with racism, sexism, domestic violence, abuse, they were told to stick to sports. And so this show is decidedly not sticking to sports. Carrie and Jamil will be covering all of the background all of the stories. You best believe they're not going to be ignoring their political beliefs on this show. And I feel like the best sports newscasters take into account what's going on in the world when they talk about sports. Like sports does not exist in a vacuum. So I'm psyched. I'm sure it'll be fabulous. Yeah, they're going to offer just some of the best takes too when it comes to all the Mm -hmm. issues that you just mentioned because they're so knowledgeable on all of those things as well and they they understand what they're talking about. So that will definitely be a a great show to tune into for sure. And then my news for this week actually came from the Just Women's Sports newsletter, which you can sign up for on JustWomenSports.com. It's kind of like a weekly newsletter that they send Mm -hmm. out, uh, email, where they'll tell you all about what's going on in women in sports. So I wanted to highlight just one thing. Forbes recently released the highest paying men and women athletes in terms of both compensation via like salary and then sponsorships from 2019. So this previous year. And I thought it was really interesting because nine of the top 10 women do play tennis. And I wanted to mm. kind of dive into two key factors that play into that. So one of them is that it highlights how the gender wage gap in tennis has been closed for the most part. Women are making the same amount of money as men in the four major tournaments. And then also at most of the Masters 1000s, which is just like a step down from the major, which we have to thank Billie Jean King and Venus Williams for. They're huge role players and destigmatizing the difference between men and women, specifically in tennis, which we'll definitely talk about when we do our episode on tennis, which I'm excited about. Oh, yeah. And then the second reason why I want to talk about that is that it's just disappointing knowing that we have so many other female athletes, such as Sue Bird, Megan Rapino, Elena Della Don, Diana Taurasi, who just never or who can't make that same amount of money just because of the lack of interest by their male counterparts, I would say, in both the NBA and not the players, but mainly like the people mm-hmm. in charge, the people who make those decisions, which is kind of sad. It's yeah. not even like we're talking about huge amounts of money. Um, Naomi Osaka, tennis player, number one 
on that list with 37 million. And then number 10 on that list is Alex Morgan with $4.6 million, which seems like, I mean, it is a lot of money, but only 400,000 came from her actual salary, like under 10% came from her salary. And then the 80, whatever to, or 90% or so came from sponsorship. So I don't know. It's just kind of disappointing. And then when you compare that with the men, I mean, Roger Federer is at number one, $106 million. And then Carson Wentz at number 10, $59 million. So there is money there in the sporting world for both men and women. I think, Mm -hmm. again, it just requires some more investment into the women's sports, which hopefully slowly but surely change is coming. Now we're going to dive into our episode today, which is the history of women's basketball in the United States. So Senda Berenson founded the first women's basketball team at Smith College in 1892. So she adapted the rules from James Naismith's basketball invention. And this was the you know famous invention of basketball at a Massachusetts YMCA school in 1891. And The cool thing here is that women's basketball started only a year after men's basketball was invented. Senda Berenson is called the matriarch of women's basketball, and it became the first women's team sport. So the first ever women's team sport, 1892, we're starting strong. And so shortly thereafter, women's basketball began spreading to other women's colleges. And in 1896, the first intercollegiate game was played between Stanford and Cal Berkeley. And apparently this part cracks me up. Men were excluded and women literally guarded the windows and doors to prevent men from attending. They didn't want the judgment. Yeah, no, they didn't want the judgment. They didn't want any heckling. Yeah. They also didn't want any men stealing their moves. Badass moves. So in that same year, the first known women's basketball game between two high schools was played in the Chicago area with the Chicago Austin High School against Oakville. So 1800s, we are playing basketball. And then classic, classic women's sports story. We take one step forward and then we take two steps back. So this is the 1800s. The culture at the time stressed the frailty of women and prioritized keeping them in the home. And so because of this, Berenson modified the rules of basketball to make it more acceptable for Victorian women to play and still maintain the ideals of refinement. She made it a three-court zone. So women had to stay in their zone and they couldn't run around outside of their zone so I guess I would I would liken this to I'm trying to think of sports that are like this today. I think men's lacrosse is like this where you know certain players can't cross certain lines. Yeah. Hockey kind of. Yeah. But basically they had their own zones and they couldn't run because what they would like break in half I guess if they ran too much mm-hmm. or at least people thought that they would. The uterus might fall out. Uterus might fall out. <laughs> One of the biggest concerns was women running. Um, <laughs> So the 1901 turned the century and turn of the hearts of Stanford and the University of California. Both schools banned basketball from intercollegiate competition and things just keep getting worse. 1908, the AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union, decided that women and girls should not play basketball in public. Like, as if it's some, you know, dirty, foul thing that like, oh, my God. Heaven forbid. Avert thine eyes. (laughs) We're not done yet. Bad news keeps on coming. 1914, the American Olympic Committee declared its opposition to women participating in the Olympics. But you cannot keep a good woman down 
throughout the 1900s. Women's basketball continued to grow in popularity in the United States. And in 1936, a team of female ballers called the Redheads. I hope they all had red hair. That'd be dope. But TBD cannot confirm toured the country playing exhibitions against men's teams. So then a couple years later, 1938, the three zone game was reduced to two zones. And then it wasn't until 1971 when women were considered hardy enough to play a full court game. (laughs) Indeed. At this point, the sport caught the eye of the International Olympic Committee and it added women's basketball as an official sport of the Olympics in 1976. Of course, men's basketball was added just a cool 40 years before then, in 1936. In that first Olympics, the Soviet team won gold, but we won silver, so we'll take it. First first time, it's not bad. They just gotta give yeah. us a few years to catch up. So the 70s brought our favorite legislation, which is Title IX, baby, which boosted the funding for women's basketball in schools, and the sport just took off. The Intercollegiate Athletics for Women held their first intercollegiate champs in 1972. Then 1982, we get into the good stuff because the NCAA began to sponsor the sport. And the first NCAA Final Four champs were held for women. As all of this is happening, professional leagues start sprouting and folding across the country. As So in 78, Bill Byrne founded the eight-team Women's Basketball League, the WBL. It expanded to 14 teams. And then it ended a year later. Then we have 1980, the Ladies Professional Basketball Association had six teams, but it played only for a month before failing. Then we get 1986, the National Women's Basketball Association, NWBA, not to be confused with the WNBA, (laughs) was founded and folded in the same season. But then April 24th, 1996, Women's basketball announced We Got Next as the NBA Board of Governors approved the concept of a Women's National Basketball Association, and boom, the WNBA was born. The WNBA began play in 97, and since then, it has been the place for the best women's basketball talent in the world. And I just want to highlight kind of a cool factoid about that first year, the WNBA. So they have an inaugural draft, and the number one draft pick is Cheryl Swoops. We'll talk about her later, but she ended up being a four-time WNBA champion and three-time WNBA MVP. Now, on top of all of her accomplishments on the floor, she was also the first female athlete to have her own signature shoe, one year prior in 1995, dubbed the Nike Air Swoops. So for those of you who don't know, a signature shoe is a collaboration between an athlete, which is usually a basketball player, and a company, Nike being probably the most major. One example includes Air Jordans, but Kobe, LeBron, Tracy McGrady, etc., they've all had their own signature shoe line that will come up with multiple shoes. So it's pretty cool that she was able to etch her name in history alongside those famous male athletes to have her own signature shoe. And it was super popular back in the 90s as well. Young girls everywhere flock to the stores and young boys too because they were pretty i mean they were fire shoes so they're always listed on like best shoes of all time like best signature shoes which is really cool yeah i'm looking them up and they are pretty dang cool like they're totally 90s but in a good way mm-hmm. yeah the ogs 1995 and then they did the air swoops too mm-hmm. and i think 2018 which is they kind of revamped it 
Wow. They are just, yeah, they are so 90s. <laughs> I, I love them, though. They look great. They're just so 90s. So 2020 marks the 24th season of the WNBA, and they kicked off with only eight teams. But 96 was also an Olympic year, and we find ourselves in Atlanta. The U.S. had won gold in 84 and 88, but we were unfortunately upset by a bronze finish in the 94 World Champs. And so we come into 96 with something to prove. And at the Georgia Dome in Athens, our dream team faced off against Brazil for the gold medal. And so not only would a loss here have been considered a failure for the Americans, but it also would have been a major blow to the professional leagues that just you know were starting on the horizon, which was the WNBA. And so our stacked team of stars beat Brazil 111 to 87, winning 8-0 in that Olympics. That win represented the first of five straight gold medals for the American team, which that is impressive. Domination. And the other thing that we sometimes forget about these groundbreaking moments in women's sports is that not only did these women represent the U.S. by winning in such a fabulous fashion, but they were promoting and publicizing the women's game. And it was thanks to that 96 Olympics that helped get those leagues off the ground. So who do we have on these teams? We start off Lisa Leslie, a.k.a. the first woman to dunk in a WNBA game. She was a three-time WNBA MVP and a four-time Olympic gold medalist and can be heard in rap songs all the time. Yes, I was wondering if you're going to be like, I dunk it on Lisa Leslie. Oh, yeah. I think I want to say it's Monster. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's Monster. It's, it's Nicki Minaj, Kanye West. Daisy. Uh, Rick Ross. Yeah, probably. And she says, I'm like, I'm dunking on him, Lisa Leslie. And I'm like, <laughs> I actually saw, I met Lisa Leslie one time. Fun what? fact. Yeah, we were at a um, tennis tournament in California. Whoa. which we go it's like it was always our spring break and we would go and we're walking into like a tent and i see none other than lisa i mean she's hard to miss just because of stature but i was like oh my fucking yeah. god that's lisa gd leslie i mean i didn't really wow. like meet her i guess because i didn't introduce hey, myself i think my mom might have shouted you know because moms and dads just like <laughs> don't give a crap so she was like my daughter no is a huge shame. fan or whatever <laughs> you know yeah absolutely <laughs> like, no holds bar with that so the next lady that we have on this team don staley so she's a three-time gold medalist voted top 15 players in WNBA history hall of famer coach of the usa national team and this year, she became the first person to win the Naismith Award as a player and a coach, which is really cool. Then we got Cheryl Swoops. We talked about her before. We're going to talk about her again. As Julia said, first player signed to the WNBA, three-time MVP and one of the league's top 15 players of all time. She was a three-time gold medalist and a Hall of Famer. Next up, we have Teresa Edwards. So she's a four-time gold medalist. She was ranked 22nd in the list of 100 greatest athletes of the 20th century. And she's also a Hall of Famer. Then we got Rebecca Lobo, Hall of Famer. Katrina McLean, Hall of Famer. Jennifer Ozzie, Hall of Famer. Ruthie Bolton, Hall of Famer. I think it's really cool that they have all these people kind of enshrined um, in the mm -hmm. in the like a basketball Hall of Fame. I like how it's not just like the NBA Hall of Fame, how it's the basketball Hall of Fame. And a lot of these ladies still hold U.S. Olympic records, including scoring average, 102, just straight points, 819, and assists, 207. 
And the other cool thing about this team is that it did the same thing for young girls who played basketball everywhere as the 99 World Cup did for young girls who played soccer. Girls everywhere were influenced by this 96 team. So I actually heard on a podcast recently, which this is the podcast version of the Just Women Sports newsletter, which is hosted by Kelly O'Hare, the love of my life. It's no big deal. U.S. Women's National Team star. And recently on one of her episodes, she talks to Candace Parker, who is just a absolute stud in the WNBA. And she and Candace talk about how they remember being 10 and watching that 96 team and being able to see women on TV. They finally had somebody to look up to. And Candace said that she, you know, went out in her driveway and started shooting and she no longer had to pretend that she was playing in the NBA. She could pretend that she was going to play in the WNBA. I haven't listened to it yet. I gotta listen to it. I'm behind two weeks, I think. Chloe Kim was on. I gotta listen to Chloe Kim Kim because I love her. Funny. Oh my god. But yeah, that '96 Olympic team really ignited something in the conscious of women and girls everywhere. And women's basketball and the WNBA just took off. June '97, Lisa Leslie and Kim Hampton took the ceremonial jump ball, marking the official start of the WNBA. The Houston Comets won the first four WNBA titles with the league's first, quote, big three, which were Swoops, Tina Thompson, and Cynthia Cooper. And then as the WN progressed, we had a lot of championships move through teams in LA, Phoenix, Detroit, Seattle, Minnesota, and we began to see the personality of some of the players begin to make their mark on the league with their talent. So apparently Tina Thompson, she was known as like ready for battle. She wore lipstick when she played. I remember that distinctly is her, yeah. is her lipstick. She is, I think it was like, it was a very distinct, I'm pretty sure it was red, a very distinct red that she would always wear. And it just looked bomb. So the other one, Lisa Leslie's sharp elbows. Ooh, I can imagine that she would probably swing them about. Ooh, that would get her to get like hot, caught in the side with one of those. Ooh. And they talk about Sue Bird's signature pull-up. Diana Taurasi's dagger threes. Then we got Deanna Nolan's pogo stick-like elevation. Yolanda Griffith's crushing relentlessness. Ticha Penachero's magical passing. Becky Hammond's fearless acrobatics. Debbie Black's gnat-like defense, which that is the most evocative description. I immediately know what that means. Lauren Jackson's guard in the body of a big play. Then we got Tamika Kachin's peerless work ethic. And then Elena Deladon's fluid shot making. She's also the first woman and ninth member of the 50-40-90 club. So it's 50% overall field goals made, 40% field goals made from three-point land, they call it, and then 90% from the free throw line. She is in rarefied company. Yeah, I can't. I don't even know the other eight men. Let me look it up since we do have the power of the internet right here. Yeah, Larry Bird, Malcolm Broden, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant. Huh, okay. Mm -hmm. Reggie Miller, Steve Nash, Dirk Nowitzki. Nowitzki, yeah. Mark Price, and then Elena Deladon. That is like an A-list. Like an A-list. Yeah. Star-studded. Oh my gosh. Sabrina Ionescu. Triple-double queen. Triple-double queen. She's a triple-double queen. Triple double queen. When the WNBA opened their doors, they made conservative estimates about how many people would attend. 
but instead they saw arenas full of passionate fans, some who had followed women's college basketball for years and some who were brand new to the game. Everyone drawn by the excitement of watching a women's team sport. But unfortunately, you know, not every WNBA team was a popular success, nor was every NBA owner or organization committed to supporting their sister team. So originally, the NBA owned each of the franchises until 2002, which I didn't know. And then it opened ownership groups in cities with and without NBA teams. So as a result, we've seen some teams relocate and fold. And the most shocking was the Comets, who you'll remember were really running the league in the early days in 2008, which is interesting. I did not know originally that every WNBA team was tied to an NBA team. It probably made the most logistical sense in 1996, just because Mm -hmm. that way you you could have like a similar ownership group and just kind of expand and trans like and delegate Mm -hmm. powers to have people look over the WNBA sister team. So overall for the first 20 for 24 years that was of existence Mm -hmm. i think it's doing well it doesn't look like it's going anywhere else but up anytime soon which Mm -hmm. is a good thing so there have been a total of 18 franchises in wnba history and currently 12 and 7 are owned independently that doesn't make sense probably 12 12. and so there's 12 no there's 12 teams currently oh seven seven of of 12 yeah independent meaning that they're not tied to nba team And then, you know, as a story, as we all know it, we have a high quality product on the court and it has yet to translate into big revenue for the players or the league. Uh, Media coverage is a big struggle. There have been some issues with television broadcast rights. It's, you know, bounced around between providers and games have limited audience exposure because, you know, they're often relegated to ESPN2, the Watch ESPN app, and in some finals, ESPN News, which is a channel that most subscribers don't have. Right. And this, I think, big issue women's sports. 4% of all sports media coverage goes to women, which is a shockingly low stat. I mean, if you just think of all the money, that's if you were to take that whole rate 100% and 96% of it goes to to men, essentially, like just with Mm -hmm. advertisement, I mean, all that stuff, marketing, advertisements, like everything that comes around with promoting a product Mm -hmm. um, and media coverage is a huge portion of that. Or even just think about, you know, every time you've been somewhere and a game has been on in the background, whether it be a bar or a restaurant or a hotel or, you know, whatever it is. And that is free eyes that Mm -hmm. that sport, that team is getting. And women's sports just don't have that opportunity. No, they play like replays of like a 1981 MLB game before they'll play, you know, the WNBA game of the day, which Mm -hmm. thankfully I feel like with this, uh, the wobble, you know, the women's bubble, they've been playing almost all of their games, I think on TV. I've seen a ton of them on TV, which has been nice because that's very rare. And hopefully ESPN's kind of putting their money where their mouth is with promoting women's sports because they like try, but then sometimes their actions don't really follow their Mm -hmm. words. So the other thing that's kind of cool about women's basketball is actually or the WNBA this past January they reached a new groundbreaking agreement on an eight-year collective bargaining agreement and it was significant because it significantly increased player cash compensation and benefits and enhanced travel standards WNBA teams used to fly coach which is crazy or take a given how tall or take a bus. Can you imagine being 6'3 and having to sit and coach? And having your body be, 
you know, one of the most important resources. Yeah. So uncomfortable. So now they can fly premium economy class. So comfort or economy plus. And they now have individual hotel rooms. They used to have to share hotel rooms. I'm pretty sure they used to have to pay for their own hotel rooms too. At one point they did. Yeah. There's actually a really interesting episode. The ESPN 30 for 30 did this episode called The Spy Who Signed Us, this podcast episode. I don't think I've listened to it yet. It's really cool. It's Sue Bird and Diana Trazzi talking about playing overseas for some Soviet spy, essentially. And they just talk about the wide discrepancy in the treatment they faced in Russia, Mm -hmm. you know, how they had wonderful hotel rooms. There was never a question that they were flying private versus the treatment that they faced in the United States. And it's just so interesting because, you know, when I picture an athlete, I picture them getting the star star treatment. treatment. Mm -hmm. That's really not the case with the WNBA or women's teams usually. Right. The other thing that was really cool is this collective bargaining agreement expanded childcare and maternity and progressive family planning benefits. That's another issue in women's sports. A lot of these leagues or sponsorship deals or USA running or whatever it may be does not take into account proper maternity leave or maternity benefits. Yeah. Yeah. This was a great step in the right direction. I love the motherhood and family planning elements because, you know, so many of these women are moms and elite athletes and it's crazy. That is just a crazy feat in and of itself. And then it's also crazy that, you know, a lot of times they don't get support from their leagues. Right. To to be able to do both because women can do both. It's just whether or not the support's there that they Mm -hmm. choose to do both. And I think it was interesting Mm -hmm. that you mentioned playing overseas because I know that for they probably use that as a leverage in their new CBA because for years a lot of times other people wouldn't play I know Diana Taurasi like wouldn't play in the WNBA at all and would just play overseas because they're able to make so much more money overseas yeah. and so I think that they kind of use that as like if you really want me to stick around here you know make sure that I get similar benefits that I receive when I'm playing overseas because uh, the income this is I don't think I'll have the numbers completely right but the maximum WNBA salary is around $120,000 and the minimum NBA salary is $900,000, which is just like disgusting. And it's, it's not even numbers necessarily, but for example, the NBA, the players, like the portion that goes to their salary is around like 40 to 50% of the total revenue, I think. And in the WNBA, it was like 10%. So I think that they're just trying to get like a closer percentage of revenue or profit or whatever, mm-hmm. which I think that they achieved in the CBA. They're really excited about it. I remember them covering that on ESPN a ton. You know, they're not asking for what they're not due. They're asking for a percentage of the revenue that the league brings in and it's still a much smaller percentage compared to the NBA compared to NBA they're not asking for Steph Curry's salary they're asking to be fairly compensated a livable wage at least for what they do a livable wage So now we're going to take a pivot to college basketball because women's college basketball is so fun to watch. We're going to talk about some of the powerhouses of schools and teams in women's college basketball and kind of give a rundown on the uh, players and some of the more famous names. So starting out, if you're talking women's college basketball, you got to talk about UConn. UConn. Man, UConn's so good. Just so good. They are a powerhouse. They're a powerhouse. Just a name drop. Sue 
mother effing bird. She still owns the UConn record for three-point and free-throw shooting. She's a two-time All-American. She is one of the best ever to play basketball. She's won four gold medals, and she's helped the Seattle Storm win three championships. So she's, oh, man, words can't even describe just what a star Sue Bird is. And then we got Diana Trazzi, another legend. Three-time All-American, again, considered one of the best to ever play in the WNBA. She and Sue Bird teamed up as arguably the best backcourt duo women's college basketball ever seen when they played together. And Diana has won three WNBA titles with the Phoenix Mercury and was named MVP of the league in 2009. Then we have Maya Moore, who was 10th all-time scoring in NCAA D1 history. She was a four-time All-American two-time gold medalist and helped the Minnesota Lynx win four championships. Then we have Brianna Stewart, who was the only UConn player to win three Naismiths Awards and three AP National Player of the Year Awards. And AP is Associated Press, not AP Test. That's something else. God, don't bring back that trauma. She was named the most outstanding player at the Final Four each season she played, which is crazy. And she won a championship and MVP in her WNBA career with Seattle. And then also UConn, they hold the record for the most wins in a row. Try to guess a number in your head, whatever number you guess, wrong. It was 111 wins in a row. Oh my God. Take a moment to just appreciate that. It spanned three years. They're so dominant that they won a hundred. I mean, you've never heard of anybody winning a hundred and whatever in a row. I mean, maybe Kenny Chestnut and the dude who eats hot dogs. (laughs) That would be my only, he's probably closest. So only three of those games were won by 10 points or fewer. So not only were they winning every single time, but they were like beating them down every single time. Crushed everybody. In this span, they won four national championships in a row, which is pretty incredible. They are the most winningest team of all time. I love that phrase. Most winningest. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) So Oregon Ducks, they're kind of like a more of a recent powerhouse, I guess. Thanks to, in part, Sabrina Ionescu. But they also Mm -hmm. have the best court. I do love their court. They got a dope court. Look it up. We'll throw it on the website. But it is, you know... Oregon is where Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, is from. So in general, all their stuff is like... Really cool. And it is... I think it's pine trees. Mm-hmm. It's wood, but it's like a overlay of pine trees. And it's it's a work of art. It's beautiful. I imagine, though, it would be hard to play on if you're not used I to it. I feel like it would trip my eyes out a little bit. That's yeah. probably a home court advantage, honestly. So again, most famously, recently, Sabrina Ionescu. Mm-hmm. So she's the... NCAA all-time leader in career triple doubles, which for those of you who don't know, she's known as the triple double queen. So she's got double digits in assists, rebounds, and points. She's also the only NCAA D1 basketball player, male or female, to have 2,000 mm-hmm. points, 1,000 assists, and 1,000 rebounds in her career. So she's like actually statistically the best player in basketball, in college basketball ever which is just so impressive. She was named the best collegiate female basketball player in the nation this past April. Kelly Graves, who's the Oregon Ducks coach, says that attendance at Oregon women's games dramatically increased during her career there, Sabrina's career there. And she also 
you know, that paid off in the WNBA because she was the first pick this season. It was a no-brainer pick by the New York Liberty. Sadly, she got injured. She got injured in her third game of the wobble, so she's not playing right now. She's going to recover, but today is Kobe Bryant's birthday. want to give a little shout-out to Kobe Bryant, RIP and peace to him and Gigi, because Sabrina and Kobe and Gigi were the threat. Sabrina, Kobe was Sabrina's mentor, so she has that killer mentality like Kobe has, so I'm excited yeah. to see what she'll do with her career in the WNBA. Mm-hmm. Another famous lady from Sabrina's time at Oregon was Satu Sabali. Okay. So her and Sabrina were a dangerous dynamic duo when they were at Oregon. She helped lead the Ducks to a stunning triumph over the U.S. Women's National Team last November. Mm-hmm. So Oregon played them. They do that a lot. They'll play like college teams in an exhibition. So she scored 25 points in that game. And then Ruthie Hebbard, she was the eighth pick in the 2020 draft. She went to Chicago Sky. She's first team All-American at Oregon in 2020. And she ended up, she went to high school in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is like so dope. And she was a three-time Gatorade Player of the Year for the state of Alaska. Wow. Mm -hmm. So Notre Dame is also more of a recent powerhouse, I would say. They're Mm -hmm. the 2001 and 2018 national champions. So some famous ladies from their team includes Kayla McBride. She was the third pick in the 2014 WNBA draft. And while she was at Notre Dame, they made it to the Final Four all of her seasons. In the national championship her senior year, they ended up losing to UConn, who was also undefeated. So it was a battle of the undefeated. But they still finished with their Notre Dame's best record ever at 40-1. and one. Another wow. woman from the pa- uh, from Notre Dame is Arike Agunbowale. She was a fifth pick in the 2019 draft. So her junior year, she won the 2018 championship. She was actually very pivotal. She made game winners in both the Final Four against UConn and the championship against Mississippi State. And she was named Female Athlete of the Year in the ACC Conference, along with Lamar Jackson, who won the Male Athlete for that year. So Lamar Jackson, if you guys don't know, was the recent MVP of the NFL. So she's, you know, alongside good company. And in 2018, during that tournament, she was named the most outstanding player, rightfully so, making those clutch shots. And then finally, another lady that we wanted to highlight was Ruth Riley. She was the fifth pick in the 2001 WNBA draft, and she was also 2001 NCAA champion. She's a two-time first-team All-American, Naismith Player of the Year, and Sports Illustrated Player of the Year in 2001. She's actually really active off the court as well still. I was reading on Wikipedia about her. She's Mm -hmm. very into charitable organizations and has donated a lot of her time and and money to charity. So Ruth Riley is a gem. And then another powerhouse and just one player in particular I want to highlight is Baylor. So they're the 2005, 2012, and 2019 champions. And Brittany Griner is just, I mean, the definition of the word beast. Um, she was the number one pick in the 2013 WNBA draft, 2012 NCAA champion. She was the AP Player of the Year. She recorded the first ever triple-double for Baylor. And she was the seventh player to dunk in a game, seventh woman to ever dunk in a game, and the second player to ever do it twice in a game. So she she plays for Phoenix alongside Diana Taurasi. So they're a fun dynamic duo to watch in the WNBA now. Wow, she is tall. She's tall. She's a tall lady. She's tall. She's just like a beast. I, I don't want to highlight people's bad stuff, but one time she punched someone in the mouth during a game in college. I mean, she it was just like... The other girl had no freaking shot, man. When that right hook came in, it just knocked her to the floor. She got suspended. I mean, it happens, right? But yeah, tempers are flaring. I mean, she is 6'8". That reach is deadly. (laughs) 
<laughs> no shot. <laughs> wow. Brittany, Brittany. All right. So then let's go south. Tennessee. Well, I guess Baylor is south, but let's go south. I wasn't going to say anything. I was still thinking about Notre Dame. I was still thinking about Notre Dame. So Tennessee, again, another powerhouse we got to talk about. One of the reasons Tennessee is such a powerhouse is Pat Summit. So she was the head coach of the Tennessee Lady Vols, which is for volunteers, which is the funniest mascot ever. I still don't know. I'm from Tennessee. I have no idea why they're, why they're called Tennessee Volunteers. Go Big Orange, though. I think that's what they say. Yeah, it's of Lady Vols. That sounds terrible. So she was the head coach from 1974 to 2012. And if you can't do that math like me, that's over 30 years. I think it's 39. Nope. <laughs> no, 38. 38. Yeah. She won ANCAA championships. She was inducted into the inaugural class of the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in 1999. In 2012, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Obama, and she received the Arthur Ashe Courage Award at the 2012 ESPYs. And the way her players talk about her as a coach make me want to go back in time and have the opportunity to have her as a coach if I played basketball, just because they talk about the incredible levels of support that she gave to them, both on and off the court, but that she also was, she was a tough coach and just could really bring the best out of you. It's funny because I was reminiscing, you know, as an adult, you don't really have a coach in your life. Your boss doesn't count. No. And when you hear the way her players talk about her, you realize just the impact a great coach can have on an athlete, not only in terms of how great they are, but, you know, how they are as a person. And people just really say really incredible things about Pat Summit. Moving right along, Candace Parker, we talked about her earlier as one of the girls who the 96 Olympics inspired, but she is a current player for the LA Sparks. She is a power forward to center. She was the first round draft pick in 2008, and she helped the Sparks win their first WNBA title in 2016. At Tennessee, she was the first woman to dunk in an NCAA game, and she was the first woman to dunk twice in a college mm-hmm. game. She helped the Lady Vols. I'm going to say Big Orange because Lady Vols sounds dirty to their second straight NCAA women's title in 2008. And that was the last title for Pat Summit as a coach. She is the best of the best. She was, I think I already said this, the first overall draft pick in the 2008 draft. And in 2016, along with other stars like Alana Beard and Neka Ogumake, she helped the Sparks win their first WNBA finals title since 2002. She's just a decorated player. She was selected to six all WNBA teams, five all-star teams, and was the first player to win Rookie of the Year and WNBA MVP in the same season. That's so special. Yeah. To be your first year to be the MVP, that's that's something special. Mm-hmm. Then another Tennessee girl, we have Tamika Catchings, who plays for the Indiana Fever, or she used to play for the Indiana Fever. She won a championship with Indiana. She was named MVP. Again, she was a prolific scorer. She was a four-time Kodak All-American and drafted to the Fever in 2001 and then was inducted into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in 2020. 
And then finally, we have Chimika Holds Claw. So she played under Pat Summit. And then she helped the Orange achieve the NCAA's first ever three-time back-to-back-to-back women's basketball championship in 96, 97, and 98. And in 98, that team went undefeated 39-0. So nearly Husky level numbers up there. Mm-hmm. She was also a four-time Kodak All-American like her teammate Tamika. And those two women are two of only six to ever earn the Kodak All-American four times. Chimika finished her career as an all-time leading scorer and rebounder in the SEC and an all-time leading scorer and rebounder in the NCAA Women's Tournament history. covers our history of women's basketball and I think something a theme that has been coming up is that you know like the women's soccer teams that we've talked about these players are just good likable people something that I've really liked to see in women's sports is just an unabashed and unwavering activism and dedication to what they believe is right these players have long been vocal supporters of Black Lives Matter and other activist causes Mm -hmm. the Atlanta Dream Lashia Claridon who self identifies as gender non-conforming, has become an outspoken LGBTQ advocate. Seattle's Brianna Stewart, who we talked about earlier, penned a Me Too article and has become a spokeswoman for RAIN, which is the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. Maya Moore from UConn and Minnesota Lynx is now taking her second season off in a row to focus on criminal justice reform, specifically the the release of Jonathan Irons, who she believes was wrongly convicted of a crime when he was a a teenager. And it's just pretty pretty amazing that she is willing to put her own career on hold to dedicate her life to criminal justice reform. And there's not a lot of people. That's a very short list of people who are willing to, to do that. So, yeah, I did not know this, but in 2018, the league launched this initiative called Take a Seat, Take a Stand campaign, where every ticket purchased the WNBA would donate $5 to one of six organizations of the fans choosing. And they were Support Bright Pink, GLSEN, It's On Us, Mentor, Planned Parenthood and the United States of Women. And this was such a cool thing that they did because the league is putting their money where their mouth is Mm-hmm. with the activism and taking a stand here. Whereas typically it's just been the female athletes who, you know, like Maya Moore, do it on their own time. It's nice to have that support from the organization, not just like mm-hmm. the individual players. Exactly. Jalen Rose says it best on ESPN, but the WNBA has always been on the forefront of activism and not just mm-hmm. shutting up and dribbling. So it's cool because the NBA players will admit that they that they the WNBA pushes them to be better and for them to mm-hmm. try to do as much as they can. Mm-hmm. You want to give an update on the wobble? You give your wobble update. Yes, so for your weekly Wubble update, depending on when this is going to be posted, <laughs> but right now the Chicago Sky lead the Eastern Conference with a 10-4 and record, and then the Seattle Storm leads the Western Conference with an 11-3 record, but right behind them are the Las Vegas Aces. So for some notable players from these teams, the Chicago Sky, they got Allie Quigley. She was actually featured in that. They played a horse, like a virtual horse, back in April, mm-hmm. and she beat Chris Paul, which was hilarious, and she is a really good shooter. Ruthie Hebbard, we mentioned her earlier. Courtney Vandersloot. That's a, sorry, that's an awful last name. But uh, Seattle Storm, we mentioned Sue Bird, the Queen. Brianna Stewart is also on that team, so they make up of a really good backcourt. And then the Aces, 
they have Liz Cam Cambage. She is like, go follow her on Twitter. She's hilarious. Kayla McBride. I think AJ Wilson just became like, she just broke a record of some sort. Maybe for double doubles. I can't remember, but. Oh yeah, double doubles. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I would definitely Google the teams, see if they have one in your, your area. They got 12 of them. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm just going to be a homegirl for my Phoenix Mercury with Diana Taurasi and Brittany Griner. That's where I am currently. But I will be a Chicago Sky. I'm hoping to get season tickets when I get to Chicago. So... Yeah, I'm a, I'm a stick scal. Washington Mystics with mm-hmm. EDD. Oh my gosh, she's, so good. she's not playing though, is she? Because of Lyme no. disease. Yeah, mm-hmm. that whole. Ugh, that was that reflected poorly on the league. WNBA, yeah. Basically, Elena Deladon has Lyme's disease. She's immunocompromised. She has to take like 81 medications, like pills a day or something. Mm-hmm. She wrote an op ed on it. Yeah, in the Players Tribune. That was mm-hmm. great. But she basically, her doctor advised her not to play because of the COVID risk and that WNBI denied. WNBI WNBA denied her request so she's sitting out without pay I think which is pretty horrible that was a, yeah. that was a weird decision on the WNBA's part and then the Mystics also have Natasha Cloud who I love who mm-hmm. has a Converse shoot deal which is fun and exciting because Converse actually is headquartered in Boston so that's a strange bridge of my two little worlds there you go check out the Wubble a lot of excitement going on they also have their kids there and so if you go like on ESPNW they'll post cute pictures of like Candace Park her hanging out with her her kid and it's really cute oh i guess we'll uh we'll wrap it here check out the wnba they're awesome if you want to see some real basketball i would watch the wnba that's all i have to say yeah come on come on from the history of the sports bra we want to wish you a good night and play hard thanks for listening Check out our website, historyofthesportsbra.com, for episode extras and more content on the wonderful world of women's sports. U.S. Open, coming around the quarter, end of August, early sept. We'll be uh, coming at you with a tennis app. Thank God. Love me some tennis. Ooh.